Hello there, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Garrett Chobi, and today we are joined by two special guests, Dr. Maria Perez-Selda and Dr. Carlos Pinero-Neto. Dr. Perez-Selda is a fellowship-trained skull-based neurosurgeon, and Dr. Pinero-Neto is a fellowship-trained rhinologist and skull-based surgeon within otolaryngology. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Garrett. It's a great pleasure. Absolutely. So today we have a, a really interesting topic, and we're going to be discussing olfactory groove meningiomas. And this is a really uh, interesting topic because it's it's truly at the interface of the neurosurgical and otolaryngology specialties in an area where we do a lot of uh, work together uh, in team-based surgery. So I thought it'd be a, a very nice topic for us to discuss, and you guys have a lot of great expertise and interest in this area, so I thought you'd be a great set of guests to uh, help us understand this disease process and how we may uh, treat it. The first thing that we always like to talk about with these diseases, when a patient comes in to see you, what are the typical presenting symptoms that patient may have? So for olfactory group meningiomas, which are uh, midline meningiomas in the anterior skull base around the cribriform plate and the crista galli, sometimes if they arise just from that area, it's sometimes very difficult to have a clear presentation. And a lot of the times they are of a really great size when they present with personality changes, for instance, when they produce or they cause edema in bilaterally in the frontal lobes. And usually for that, they are greater than four centimeters. Anosmia is another symptom that is quite common, although sometimes is not usually the primary complaint. But when the patients present with a large olfactory group meningioma, when they are asked about that specifically, they usually report or they often report this symptom. And then when the tumors go usually along the planus pheroidale as well, and posteriorly, they can also cause visual acuity problems, visual field deficits, if they displace the optic nerves and the chiasm. And there's also another presentation that is very classical for this olfactory group meningiomas, which was described as the Foster-Kennedy syndrome, which is rare to see, but it courses with unilateral optic nerve atrophy and contralateral papilledema. Interesting. And when you mentioned early on that occasionally they'll present with some personality changes from frontal lobe edema, and is that typically sort of frontal lobe kind of symptoms, or what personality changes might they experience? The family members usually detect that before the patient does. Usually it can cause with uh, abulia or lack of interest in certain things and even depression and also some cognitive changes as well. Very good. And, and as, far, as far as what's been described, are there any specific predisposing or risk factors for, for these meningiomas? So, so all meningiomas in... Uh, intracranial meningiomas, we have, usually they are sporadic and they present around, you know, with people in their 60s or 50s, most usually, but also some genetic diseases such as NF2 and other syndromes and also exposure to ionizing radiation in the past is a predisposing factor. So those are probably the most important uh, and also hormonal component of meningiomas but sporadic tumors are the most common. 
And when we talk about these particular tumors and how they develop, in a little more specificity, can you tell us where these tumors develop? So we know they can occur in different areas, but but specifically in, in the uh, olfactory groove in different areas of the cranial base, where do meningiomas arise from? So they arise from the, um, the cells in the arachnoid. And so they have a dural base, and that's what defines uh, meningiomas. And specifically, when we talk about olfactory group meningiomas, they arise from the area around or the dura around or in the olfactory groove and cribiform plate, but also around the crista galli. And then posteriorly, uh, when they go to the area of the plenum of the sphenoid, they are called plenum meningiomas. And often the meningiomas involve these two areas if they are large enough. Very good. And, and just for, for the audience, can you talk a little bit about the spectrum of this disease? So we, we typically think of meningiomas as not a malignant tumor, but there is certainly a spectrum there. So maybe talk a little about a grade of tumor and, and how that is described. Yeah, so there's a, uh, as all meningiomas, uh, the World Health Organization divides them in three types or three grades. The grade one, which is the most common, which is about 80 to 90% of the cases, which is the histologically most benign tumor with uh, lower recurrence rates. And then the grade two, which is also uh, named as atypical meningioma. Then the most malignant or the most aggressive locally is the amnoplastic meningioma, which is grade three. So the recurrent rate of the, those tumors, even after gross total resection, is much greater, uh, especially in the grade three, as compared to grade one. But they are also less common. Very good. And if you have someone that comes to see you in clinic with a large midline tumor in this particular location, perhaps some of the symptoms you mentioned earlier, is there anything else on your differential that you would consider besides a meningioma? Yes. So the imaging is quite typical, although there are some other pathologies that can mimic this presentation in MRI or CT scan. And one of the most common and that we have to ask the patient about um, any past uh, medical history is specifically any history of previous cancer, previous malignancies, because any dural metastasis can mimic the appearance of uh, meningiomas. So even small lesions that look like meningioma in patients with history of cancer, they have to be watched very carefully. And uh, also lymphoma is the another great mimicker uh, as far as dural-based lesions. Also hemangioparicytoma and of course inflammatory and infectious diseases can enter in the differential. So really, you know, a thorough history and of the patient in clinic is very important to direct and to suspect these diseases as well. Very good. And this, this sort of leads into the next area that I, I was hoping you would be able to discuss, because this is probably a, a very key part of this conversation. That's the imaging characteristic of these lesions and what they tend to represent on both MRI and CT scans. And it really is, is important to sort of have a good idea of what you're dealing with prior to offering the patient a certain intervention. So perhaps you could speak to those imaging characteristics of these meningiomas. So in CT scan, the, the meningiomas and also in MRI, they usually they enhance with contrast. So that's a very typical dural-based lesion that enhances uh, with contrast. 
that's very typical. Without contrast, we can see some high-so-dense or hyper-dense images on CT scan. And in MRI, without contrast, they can vary from ESO to uh, hyper-intense in T1 or ESO or hyper-intense in T2 for the most part. But commonly in CT and MRI, they have this usually homogeneous enhancement. Sometimes there are cystic parts as well. And what is very typical is uh, the dural tail, which is enhancement that diminishes around the sides or the limits of the meningioma. And that's quite typical. There are reports of uh, non-enhancing meningiomas, that, but that is exceedingly rare. And also another characteristic that I would like to say about meningiomas is that sometimes they are calcified, and that can be seen very well, especially in CT scan. And that's very characteristic of meningiomas when that happens, which are the minority of them. But that is a, is a good uh, sign that usually differentiates them quite often from other pathologies. And then also is very important regarding vascularization of these lesions. Uh, when we, we can get CT angiograms, for instance, or in geography, just to determine also the encasement and the vascularization of the lesions, which is also very important. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Dr. Pinero-Nado, I wonder if you might speak to a little bit of a lesion in this area, we can either see an intracranial lesion that could potentially extend into the nose versus other lesions that begin high in the nasal cavity, for instance, anesthesio neuroblastoma that may extend uh, superiorly intracranially. So how, when you look at imaging studies of these lesions, what helps you to sort of differentiate those things? Yeah, so when the tumor has this large dural base and going usually through the form a filament towards the nasal cavity, that uh, most likely represents a meningioma. Usually when it's a tumor that it's more concentrated in the nasal cavity and uh, push the skull base superiorly, you can see this round shape of this uh, lesion expanding towards the skull base. In the case of the stesoderoblastoma, usually we don't see this tail, uh, uh, the meningioma. In the dural tail, like we see in the in the meningiomas. Very good. And then I, I wonder, before we get on to different interventions or treatment options, I wondered if you guys might be able to speak to uh, pertinent physical exam findings that are available for these patients. And perhaps also, uh, if you elect to do a nasal endoscopy on these patients, perhaps for surgical planning, what particular things you look for on your endoscopy that may help you to plan uh, a surgery? Yes. So, Interesting that when we're dealing with a patient with an intracranial tumor and the recommendation is a endoscopic transnasal approach, it's um, intracranial disease that we are using the sinuses as a pathway. So it's important to see if there is any deviated septum, any sinonasal pathology associated because sometimes a patient can have the meningioma and recurrent sinusitis or chronic sinusitis, nasal polyposis. So it's really important to perform a nasal endoscopy before the surgery, not only seeing the images, CT scan and MRI, but also see the quality of the nasal mucosa, presence of pure lens, deviated septum that can be in your way to 
to reach the skull base. So it's, it's really important to perform a nasal endoscopy before the surgery in the clinic. Very good. Thank you. Um, and I, I think we'll change gears a little bit now and, and talk about treatment options. So I, I would imagine, uh, Dr. Paracelta, that these patients are probably seeing you primarily in clinic as their initial uh, surgical contact point. So I was hoping you'd be able to give us uh, a synopsis of the initial conversation you have with these patients in regards to treatment options that are available to them to consider. So first of all, depending on the symptoms and uh, the size of the tumor, the recommendation could be just uh, if it's incidental and the tumor is small, the recommendation may be just to follow, you know, follow up with an MRI. But when we have large tumors or symptomatic tumors or tumors that we have been watching carefully and they present with growth at some point, then we have several treatment options. We have either uh, surgery, and surgery is preferred for tumors that are of us are large tumors that they present with uh, symptoms because of compression. And at that point, we have uh, in surgery two surgical options, either to do a craniotomy and uh, resect the tumor, or if they are amenable, we can do an endoscopic endonasal approach. There's a role for stereotactic radiosurgery as well, for especially you know, LINAC-based or gamma-knife-based, uh, et cetera, as a primary treatment, which is usually reserved for either patients who are elderly or have uh, comorbidities, and they have also relatively small tumors, usually less than 2 or 2.5 centimeters in these patients. Some um, groups say that this could be even a if the patient does not have anosmia, could be a way to also preserve smell. But there are limitations such as a small volume. And also if it's uh, close to the optic nerve or optic chiasm would not be the ideal treatment and also some effect, adverse effect of radiation. So for other patients who don't have these um, characteristics, we think about surgery and it's really important to make a good decision about the approach depending on the particular patient, comorbidities, tumor size, location of the tumor, and the structures involved. And also another important data to uh, have in mind is also how comfortable we are with one approach or another approach. And how is the team that we have to perform one approach or the other? Yeah, absolutely. I think those those are those are all really important points to make as as you think about those things. But before we get into uh, too far into the surgical uh, aspects, I just wanted to, to ask a quick question on gamma knife therapy. It's something that we we see given a fair amount, especially for smaller tumors or perhaps an elderly patient. Is is the goal of gamma knife to simply stop growth of tumor? Does it make it go away? How, how does it actually work? And what, what are we trying to accomplish with gamma knife therapy if that's selected as an option? Yeah, so if we try to accomplish stability of the tumor, sometimes we even see the tumor shrink a little bit, but it will not disappear. So the benefits is that it's uh, not as invasive as surgery and also uh, has more than 90% 
control of the tumor that has been reported in about you know five years after treatment, especially for tumors that are grade one. In, it also has been seen that in patients that who have preserved olfaction that usually preserves olfaction after this treatment. So it's also a great tool, a great option as well for patients and certainly in the uh, right subset of patients and uh, tumor size and proximity of uh, structures is a very important uh, treatment to offer as well. Very good. Thank, thanks for clarifying that, especially for the uh, otolaryngologists in the audience. It's nice to have a little uh, background on, on those uh, treatment options that are primarily used for, for neurosurgical indications. So let, let's move on. And you touched a little bit on surgery already and brought up some excellent points about um, different options that are available and, and how you may begin to think about those things. Let, let's presume that uh, you're in a situation where both uh, a craniotomy approach and an endoscopic approach are both uh, very capable options at your institution. Talk with us a little bit about when you when you go through that process with a patient of deciding which option you're going to choose, what factors really play a strong role in, in deciding? I, I usually talk to the patients about if they are both equally, meaning like we can, we think that we can get the same degree of resection with open and endoscopic approach, then comes a, a matter of uh, number one, uh, patient preference. Number two, the presence or not of uh, anosmia, you know, in patients who have olfactory group meningiomas. Why? Because in open craniotomies, um, we are sometimes able to preserve olfaction, whereas when we go through the nose, we go through the olfactory epithelium, through the lamina cribosa, and we cannot preserve olfaction. So that's one of the main points. And... And then the other point also is that, of course, the craniotomy uh, means a larger incision, uh, an incision, and you know some patients just uh, prefer an endoscopic approach. But the most important factor I think has to be if we are able to, we have to choose the approach or recommend the approach that we think is going to get the best re- degree of resection. Very good. And let's say that either from uh, patient preference or from, uh, you know, shared decision making, you you elect for a craniotomy approach. What what exact approach would you typically select? And in that approach, what would you typically consider for your reconstruction? So I select the approach based on the attachment of the tumor because sometimes the tumors are very large and they can they can be not only olfactory group meningiomas, but also stent to the planum, stent to the tuberculum, stent to one or the other optic canal. And so if they're purely olfactory group meningiomas, meaning they are completely in midline and they don't extend to uh, the optic canals on one side or the other, they are not around the carotid artery or encasing that, then I would say I usually prefer to do a bi- a coronal approach as a frontal approach, because uh, by doing that, we can also dissect epidurally before and uh, coagulate the vascularization of the tumor early. And then we know that the optic nerves and the chiasm are going to be posterior to the tumor. However, when these tumors are very large and they they are also in the planum and going towards the tuberculum, and especially when they are going to towards one or the other side, 
and invading the optic canal and are around the carotid artery, then I usually prefer to perform either a pterional approach or a, an orbitozygomatic approach, depending on how how high the tumor is. If the tumor is very high, I usually use a, an orbitozygomatic approach. And the reason for that, to use the pterional or orbitozygomatic as opposed to the bifrontal approach in these cases, is because I can perform an anterior clinoidectomy, find the carotid artery, and also decompress the optic canal and open the falciform ligament. But when it's a purely olfactory group meningioma, it's usually, you know, at least in, in my opinion, uh, it's usually more advantageous to go subfrontal because then you can also coagulate um, the base around the cribriform plate better than when we go through the side because it's very deep into the anterior cranial fossa as well. Very, very good. And, and now one more point on, on the craniotomy, an aspect you mentioned earlier about the potential preservation of, of olfaction is something that we discuss a lot when we think about the endoscopic versus a craniotomy approach. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about uh, techniques to preserve that in a craniotomy when possible? Yeah, so the base to preserve that is to uh, preserve the olfactory nerves, the olfactory bulbs, the filaments, and preserve you know, all the structure that go into the uh, nasal cavity from, you know, the small filaments that go into the nasal cavity. So sometimes the tumor, when they are very large and they involve these areas, this is part of the dura that we have to take out. And so in very large tumors, the patients, they often don't have any sense of smell. But at least when they have some preservation of smell, at least leaving one of the sites uh, with the olfactory nerve and filaments intact will preserve olfaction. And so I think that's important to, it's a very important point for consideration. Yeah, absolutely. And with this approach, whether it's a, a bifrontal or an OZ or whatnot, how, how often do you encounter a CSF leak into the nose? And if so, what do you typically use to reconstruct that? That's a very important point. So, um, the resection grade is very important in meningiomas. We know being Simpson grade one, the resection that we want to accomplish, which is all the macroscopic tumor that we see, the dura involved and the bone involved. And often we have hyperstatic bone and often we have infiltrated bone. So when we drill the bone and then we encounter that we are uh, that bone is involved and we are in the nasal cavity, then if it's a small entrance into the nasal cavity, then we can pack it with either fat or muscle, but it's very important to close the dura as uh, tightly as we can. We can use, if it's a, a large area to reconstruct, we use fascia lata, suture primarily, and we also use the pericranial flap as well. Oftentimes, we need to cranialize the frontal sinus because we want to really get, when we do a bifrontal craniotomy, we want to really get low into the anterior skull base so we can have access towards the, the base of implantation of the tumor. And so uh, for that, we have to remove all the mucosa of the frontal sinus, drill at least the, most of the posterior table, the frontal sinus, and then we usually pack with fat and we use the pericranial flap on top of that. Now, on the contrary, if you decide a patient may be amenable to an endoscopic approach, 
I, I always find it interesting to, to discuss with folks about, you know, what are the limits of the endoscopic approach? So in other words, if you have a tumor, is size a limit? Is degree of intracranial extension a limit? Or perhaps degree of orbital involvement or overtop the orbit? How do you think about those things when deciding about an endoscopic approach? So I think one of the most important parts is the lateral extension. I think even if it goes a little bit over the orbits, we are usually able to resect that endoscopically as long as it does not cross the limit of the medial aspect of the optic nerves and so in the orbit. And so how we are going to reach laterally if it goes a little bit above the orbits is a matter of uh, resecting the lamina papyracea and going on top and uh, pushing a little bit the orbit laterally. And so we can get to the base of implantation of the tumor. But that, that's certainly a limit uh, for the endoscopic approach. Another factor to consider is, and this is controversial, is when uh, the tumors don't show a good arachnoid plane, sometimes it's a little bit more challenging to dissect from below than through the craniotomy. And so that we can see that usually in the T2 sequences in MRI. And also when we have arterial encasement, if the tumor is very large and has arterial encasement, although not all the groups would agree with this, I think it's a little bit more challenging to perform that through the nose. Yeah. And in, in particular, what, which arteries would you be most concerned about for a tumor in this location? So the brand, the ACA branches, that would be the most concerning. And then if the tumor is very large, it can really go, um, has a tuberculum cella component, then it can go all the way back and involve all the other perforating arteries. So if this is the case, if, this, if the tumor also involves the tuberculum, then it's, uh, it's challenging no matter which approach we choose, that's for sure. But uh, if there's true arterial encasement, it is usually a little bit more challenging to uh, to perform the dissection through an endoscopic endonasal approach. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Dr. Pinero-Nato, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about if if uh, you guys are planning for a combined endoscopic surgery, how, how do you think about the nose in the corridor to access this tumor? And what are your thoughts as you plan out uh, your portion of the operation? Yes, so to use the nose as a corridor to remove an intracranial tumor, the ideal scenario is to minimize as much as possible the nasal trauma and preserve the nasal physiology. So at the beginning, when we started doing those approaches, we were removing all the middle turbinates, the complete anterior posterior ethmoidectomies, maxillary antrostomies, just to create space for the neurosurgeon to really uh, resect the tumor. The natural evolution of those approaches now is try to minimize the nasal trauma if we're dealing with the only intracranial pathology. So in our group now, what we do is we call the superior ethmoidal approach, where the beginning of the operation is a draft three frontal sinusotomy to create space uh, in the frontal sinus and exposure of the posterior table of the frontal sinus, the slope of the skull base, keeping the middle turbinates attached. And from there, we uh, lateralize the middle turbinates and can work in, uh, in this space between the septum, the nasal septum and the turbinate, just removing the cells along the skull base towards the orbit. And uh, once this work is performed bilaterally, 
uh, very limited superior septectomy is performed just along the, the next to the cribriform. So that's more or less the approach we are, we, we are doing now for those tumors. It provides when we have that space and remove the skull-based bone, the space is pretty much the same. There's a little bit more restriction doing the nasal work, but the intracranial work is pretty much the same. There is no compromise of the degree of resection of the tumor. And uh, we recently studied the physiology of this, which showed uh, in, a, in a computational fluid dynamics study that showed the more preservation of that moid, the nose postoperatively, it looks like more the normal nose with a similar airflow and heat transport to the nasal cavity. So I think that's a new trend now for intracranial pathology, using the nose as only as a corridor. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And I think you guys have done some really, really nice work on this and sort of leading the way in these minim, truly minimally invasive uh, approaches. Would you also touch a bit on uh, how you think about reconstruction as you plan the surgery? You know, typically in, in most of these cases, as opposed to a cyanasal malignancy, the nose is a little bit more, you know, it gives you a few more options than a big tumor in the middle of the nose. So how do you think about and plan your reconstruction for intracranial pathology? Yeah, so the best reconstruction is using vascularized tissue. It's uh, especially if you're dealing with a large anterior cranial base defect. In our group, when we're doing with areas, not large defects, not a high flow CSF leak, free mucosal grafts work very well. But when we talk about the large anterior cranial base resection bilateral, the best reconstruction is with a vascularized flap. The first option, the nasal septal flap. It's very important to discuss all the options prior and discuss with the patient because if there is a possibility of the need of a pericranial flap, for example, even in an endoscopic resection, this patient needs to be consented and needs to know that he might have an incision in the, in the coronal area and also uh, preparation of the surgical field before the surgery. So it's really, I think this is a very important topic because it needs to, the patient needs to know and you need to know how to approach that and have options for the reconstruction because sometimes you harvest the flap, the flap is not enough to cover the large skull base defect and you need to have other options, contralateral flap or a, a lateral nasal wall flap or maybe even the pericranial flap to be transposed to the nasal cavity. Yeah, very, very good points. I think, uh, you know, having proper preparation before the surgery is, is really key for, for these approaches. And Dr. Paracelt, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about advantages or disadvantage of the endoscopic approach in the sense of sort of approaching the tumor directly under it where its primary attachment point is versus approaching it from above and if there's any benefit or drawback to either of those uh, approaches. Yes, that's a very, very important point. Uh, it, one of the biggest and greatest advantages of the endoscopic endonasal approach for olfactory group meningiomas, there's no question about it, is that the vascularity of the tumor, at least the main vascularity of the tumor through the anterior and posterior ethmoidal uh, arteries, is seen first and is coagulated first. That means that the tumor is uh, devascularized to a greater degree Whereas if the tumors are very large and we go also from, you know, a subfrontal approach, although we try to go epidurally and first coagulate the base of implantation of the tumor, 
is uh, is certainly not the same. We don't get the same degree of devascularization uh, as going through the through the nasal cavity, in which we see the anterior and posterior ethmoidal arteries. But uh, the technique is the same. The concept is the same. But I would say that the efficiency of uh, devascularizing the tumor that way is greater uh, with the endoscopic approach. And that's that's a great advantage of that. Thank you. And, and as we talk about these approaches, it's also important to think about uh, post-surgical care of these patients. So in these approaches, whether it's a craniotomy or the endoscopic approach, what are some complications that you can see in the, in the early post-operative period? So the complications that we are always worried about is um, CSF leak. That's the, uh, the most important complication. Of course, you know, any hemorrhage or stroke or anything uh, intracranial. Uh, and then when we go through the nose also, you know, epistaxis could be a problem. But the, the most common complication, I would say, is uh, probably the CSF leak. And different groups have looked at different series, and they all tend to agree that the endoscopic endonasal approaches tend to have more postoperative CSF leaks than the open approaches, just because with the open approaches, we are able to directly suture the dura. We have different layers. But uh, really paying attention to detail in endoscopic approaches, uh, using the vascularized flap, thinking about reconstruction before the operation, and it really minimizes the uh, postoperative CSF leak that has to be uh, a goal of that surgery as well. In uh, our group, in endoscopic approaches, for this we place an inlay graft, and uh, that usually is a synthetic collagen graft. If it's you know it's just the uh, olfactory group involved, and then we put the nasoceptal flap. But if we have a little bit more posterior defect involving the planum or a little bit the tuberculum, then we prefer to use a, a fascia lata inlay graft, sometimes placed as a bottom graft, which has two layers sutured, one inlay, one onlay. And then after that, we place a nasoceptal flap. And I, I let uh, the Dr. Pinheiro talk about when we have a very anterior defect, sometimes uh, Dr. Pinheiro releases the pedicle of the nasoceptal flap to, so it reaches anteriorly towards the frontal sinus. Yeah, good good point. There's a, I think you have a, a one or two very, very nice uh, papers on that. Would you provide us a little more detail on that? Yeah, so for the reconstruction of the skull base, when you're dealing with a very large defect, we need to optimize the reconstructive surface of the flap, which means that when we harvest a standard regular nasoceptal flap, which is pedicle at the sphenopalatine artery region and at the arch of the coena, there are all that mucosa, the periosteum of the mucosa that covers the vomer, it's basically used as a bridge. And the reconstructive area of the flap is mostly the quadrangular cartilage area in the front, which is a thicker area. If we do this release all the way towards the pterygopalatine fossa, and in some cases, even the periosteal release after opening the maxillary sinus exposure of the pterygopalatine fossa, a periosteal release around the artery, uh, it's possible to extend this flap along the orbit and a more mucosa of the, the flap will be available for the reconstruction. So we are doing that. 
Another uh, thing that can be done is the extended dissection of the flap towards the floor or even inferior meatus. That area of the floor attached to the, included to the regular standard nasal septal flap, it's very nicely to rotate and cover the, the region of the tuberculum. So the quadrangular cartilage area of the flap goes anterior and that area of the floor posteriorly towards the planum. So it's a great coverage of the skull base all the way from the tuberculum to the frontal beak or the nasium. Yeah, excellent. That's And that's a re- really nice option for those, I think, very large defects that you occasionally get with tumors such as this. And as we think about, you know, moving out longer term as these patients progress, uh, you know, hopefully tumor-free for one, two, three, four, you know, 10 years, any other things that you see as adverse effects that can come up uh, along the way with these patients? Yeah, in the long term, especially if you're doing an endonasal approach uh, or a craniotomy approach, a bicoronal with frontal sinus cranialization, it's important to get images not only to see the tumor uh, or any evidence of recurrence, but also to check the presence of mucosils. So especially with the cranialization of the frontal sinus, if there is a, some mucosa trapped in the sinus, that can progress to a mucosil. Uh, so one of the most important things uh, in the sinuses is check the presence of sinusitis, mucosils. And it's interesting because sometimes the patients are completely asymptomatic. So the image is going to be important for that. Excellent. Thank you. And there's a couple of things I, I wanted to uh, just kind of quickly ask about that vary from group to group. So I was curious as to how uh, you guys do a few of these things. The first one is if if you have a patient that you've done this approach on endoscopically and has some packing in the nose, do you typically like absorbable packing or non-absorbable packing? And do you typically utilize antibiotics? Yeah, so that's very interesting. I've been changing over time. First, I was using like non-absorbable packing for everybody. And now for these large defects, and then I start using just the absorbable packing. Nowadays, my my approach, our approach for, if we're talking about a very large defect is after putting a dura sealant cover in the reconstruction, we place a absorbable packing first, sometimes two absorbable packings because there's large defect. And uh, to support that, a non-absorbable packing. But what's interesting is, when we're dealing with, when we're able to do this preservation of the atmoid, if you just pack the superior atmoidal space with absorbable packing, the remnants of the atmoid and the terminates support the, the reconstruction. So if it's, uh, for example, we're doing this for a sinonasal malignancy that the nose is totally empty, absorbable packing next to the reconstruction, and then two non-absorbable packing to support. And then I leave the non-absorbable pack for four or five days. If it's a, a superior atmoidal approach, just absorbable pack in the superior atmoidal space. Yeah, very, very good. good. Good points there. And then lastly for this area, if you have someone who has obstructive sleep apnea and who perhaps is on a CPAP machine, how do you counsel them about resuming that postoperatively? That's a great question. So that's something that there's no consensus yet in the literature. And uh, Always I try first to talk to the patient and see if they are able to not, if there's not a very severe sleep apnea, patient is going to have a major problem, high risk if not using CPAP, 
if they can avoid the CPAP for two, three weeks. If not, they, they go back to, the, to using the CPAP after a week. So that's more or less usually the approach we have. Yeah, great. Thank you. It's, we're, we're seeing more and more uh, folks who have sleep apnea are on CPAP machines. So I, I seem to encounter that question uh, more and more. So thanks for offering uh, your perspective on it. Yeah. What I've noticed is with more preservation of the atmoid, if you're doing a, only a skull base surgery, with more preservation of that moid, I feel that that airflow is going to be more directed to the to the nasopharynx. So it's going to be less pressure anyway in the reconstruction. So, but this is a big uh, discussion, yes, in terms of the CPAP. If the patient can stay w- without the CPAP for a little longer, that's the, the best. But sometimes they, they are not able. And if they're not able, you can even think to leave just like the packing next to the reconstruction, but with an area for the airflow underneath. And as we uh, start to wrap up today, outside of, you know, particularly olfactory groove meningiomas, as, as a very successful group, any tips or tricks that you guys have sort of come across through the years as far as building a practice or innovating as you guys have or those kind of things that would be useful for the audience? So I think regarding uh, planning an individual case, I cannot emphasize enough that we need to get the maximum information from the preoperative test, especially from the imaging especially the MRI, the CT scan, because where the hyperstosis is can tell you exactly where the tumor is attached, for instance, and that is going to be a major factor in evaluating where or how to resect the tumor. Meaning, for instance, if the base of implantation of the tumor is in the planum versus a little bit posterior that is in the tuberculum, it's a completely different operation in terms of risk. And if we talk about the endoscopic endonasal approach and reconstruction, etc., so I think that's a major factor. And also, uh, as far as uh, I think, having a multidisciplinary team greatly improves the success of the operation. And specialized training in skull base is also very important, uh, not for neurosurgery and for ENT as well. I would say that those are the two main aspects that I consider essential. Yeah. And one more thing is when we're starting a team, a skull-based team, this partnership with ENT neurosurgery, it's very important at the beginning to try to bring your neurosurgeon or the neurosurgeon bring to the ENT to as many cases as possible. So even cases that you technically don't need a neurosurgeon, I think it's worth it to bring them and work with them. So for example, when we started even a draft three frontal sinusotomy, drilling out the frontal beak, not an intracranial surgery, but it's important to create the relation with your partner. Uh, another thing, uh, using the anatomy lab to dissect together, to learn the anatomy together, to create this really important, to create these modifications m- of techniques, of techniques and, and working, learning how to work together, you know, the, and then gradually. Is like a dance. The movements is going to be very harmonic. Yeah. Now those those are those are re- really good points. I think really insightful to hear. Uh, as we wrap up, and before I do a summary, a- any other uh, things you guys wanted to share today? No, I think you're very nice. You covered everything. Excellent. Well, again, I, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I think you guys are 
great leaders in this field and have done a lot of great work. So thank you for all of your effort and time today. And I think we'll all benefit from, from learning from your experience. Thank you very much, Dr. Chobi. You're welcome. Thank you very much. It was great. Absolutely. Thank you. So as we move into the summary uh, of today's talk, olfactory groove uh, meningiomas are tumors that arise in the dura just above the olfactory cleft and tend to extend intracranially. There are some fairly characteristic imaging findings, uh, especially the dural tail on MRI scan. A number of potential approaches are possible, including both a craniotomy approach and an endoscopic approach. And each approach should be tailored to that individual patient as well as their tumor characteristics. We have a few questions that we'll wrap up with today as we do at the end of every episode. The first question uh, for today is, what are typical presenting symptoms for patients with an olfactory groove meningioma? Although these tumors can occasionally be found incidentally, some patients present with frontal lobe symptoms, such as a uh, lack of desire to do typical activities of daily living. And some patients also present with anosmia, or occasionally, if tumors extend far enough posteriorly, potentially vision changes. The next question pertains to the endoscopic approach. And as we think about this approach, what are some important considerations for reconstruction when considering an endoscopic approach? A number of things should be considered, including the availability of vascularized rotational tissue from the nasal cavity, as well as uh, consideration for inlays, whether that's a synthetic collagen matrix or fascia lata. And then lastly, fallback options should also be considered things like a pericranial flap or a lateral wall rotational flap as well. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. That's all the time that we have. We had an excellent discussion with our guests, and we look forward to you joining us in the next episode of ENT in a Nutshell. Thank you.